HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. issues will be starting shortly please stay tuned I'm Greg from Kapow. Visit us at kapow.com to check out our unique collection of everyday reusable products designed to help you do more with less. C-U-P-P-O-W dot com. Hey, 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 I'm Jimmy Carboni from Beer Sessions Radio. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Cooking issues coming to you live on the Heritage Radio Network from Roberta's Pizzeria in Bushwick, Brooklyn. How you doing, folks? Call in your questions to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. Join in the studio as usual with Nastasia Lopez. How you doing, Stas? Good. Yeah, everything good. And and of course, in the booth we got Jackie Molecules. Jack. Hello, hello. Now, Jack. Molecules. Now, Jack, it's going to be sad times for cooking issues because good news for you, you're going to go out on tour pretty soon, right? I am, yeah. There's a lot on the horizon for me right now. But if you're on tour, that means that you're not going to be in the booth. Well, you know, <laughs> there'll be 
the ghost of Jackie Molecules. Um, no, I, I, I do hope to kind of call in from some of these cities. I'll be in, uh, let's see, I'll be in London. I'll be in the east of England, some weird little town, Ipswich, I think. Then I'll be in Paris and I think Barcelona and Iceland. Ooh. Yeah. I want to go to Iceland. Me too. Yeah, I'm excited about that one. The most. We're playing shows in like the weirdest places in Iceland, so that'll be fun. Yeah? Yeah. If the listeners want to check out the music, it's Odetta Hartman 222, which I think I've shamelessly plugged on the show before, but that's the record that I produced. I play with her live, and um, we're hitting the road. So what's up with the 222? What's the meaning of the 222? Well, let's see. Her birthday is the 22nd. Her number is two. That's just where it starts. And then uh, we had this thing where we would always send each other screenshots when it was 2.22 p.m. on mm. the phone, back and forth, just as a kind of like whatever thing. And then it turns out she researched the number 222, and it's some weird like numerology. It's like an angel number of it, – it, the meaning behind it is like a divine collaboration kind of thing or something. So – I don't know. There are all these coincidences with with the twos. So we just went, and then the record itself is twenty two minutes and twenty two seconds long. By chance, Th- that first of all, you're lying. I'm, well, okay. <laughs> the, the final mix down. I, 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 listen, the final mix down was like twenty one minutes and forty seconds, and I was like, I'll be damned if this isn't twenty two twenty two. It was close enough, you know. Yeah, so that is not by chance. Yeah, shave it. It's cl- no, it was fine, close fine. enough by chance. It's yeah. close yeah, enough yes. by chance. Right. Thanks. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Uh, I, it's, wait, so how many twos are in the album? Only three. What You got a fourth two there. Yeah, I know. It's just kind of a hanging two. A hanging two. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, anyway. Uh, so, yep. so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, my last show in the studio will be the week of uh, the 24th. So, I don't know. What day would that be? The 19th or something? June 19th? That'll be a sad day. Yeah. That'll be a sad We'll day. pop champagne. Oh! Oh, and uh, Mimi Me's... For Stas, mostly, not for me. Mimi Me's in the back, uh, provided by Peter Kim, the director of the Museum of uh, Food and Drink, coming off of his... Uh, uh, I'm sure you went on some huge bender because you just finished your the uh, spring benefit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, actually, no, I... I the next morning, Alice Waters came and visited the museum, and then I had to do this shoot for CBS Sunday Morning you on you the Chinese takeout box. You so. didn't uh, liquor yourself up for the uh, Alice Waters meeting? <laughs> <laughs> no? I think no. that was a yes. Yeah, that was a yes. That was a secret yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's right. He was actually, he wasn't using liquor, he was chewing cot. Is cot actually illegal here in the it U.S.? It is highly illegal, so I know nothing of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah your old lawyer days coming back. It okay. is highly illegal, Dave. All right, so we got some uh, interesting stuff uh, we're going to do here on the uh, program today. Was, we're going to call into Harold McGee. He's he's on the line. Oh, he's pa- on the line, patiently waiting. All right, well, and, and Daniel Gritzer is going to come in later to help answer someone else's question on nixtamalization. But Harold, how you doing? I'm doing well, thanks. How about you guys? Oh, good, good. Harold was the uh, the 20, 2016 recipient of uh, what was the exact the MoFed honoree? Yeah, 2016 honoree. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, you might know him as the person who knows everything about the science of deliciousness, or at least has taught us everything about the science of deliciousness. If you haven't uh, already purchased uh, On Food and Cooking, uh, The Keys of Good Cooking, and gone on BookFinder and also purchased uh, The Curious Cook uh, off of someone else's used bookstore, then do that now. Stop listening to us and go buy that right now. Um, are you ever going to republish that on your website, The Curious Cook? Have you, I know like you have excerpts out there. 
Yeah, I should really do something about that, shouldn't I? <laughs> yeah, because it, it doesn't even. It's not like uh, it's not like republishing the old information from on food and cooking in the first edition, which I know you're like I'd have to go revisit it. This is more about just experiments. You could write literally like a two paragraph addendum, being like, "This is no longer 100 percent what I think, but this is how I went through the experiment at that time." It'd still be useful for people, no? Yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> just my just my personal feelings. All right, so I met someone at uh, Booker and Dax um, recently, and she had said that uh, her I think it was her mom uh, had just had a virus and had knocked out her olfaction, and the doctors you know said that uh, you know it might come back a hundred percent, it might come back partially, it might take weeks, it might take months, and I told her that I know someone. Uh, you know, you, Harold, <laughs> who uh, had a similar a similar um, problem. And so I just thought I'd have you on to talk about kind of what that was like, especially for someone who, you know, is, uh, food is such a big part of their life and kind of how you made it through it and kind of what the whether there was any sort of thing you could do to help yourself out while it was going on. Yeah, it was uh, not fun. <laughs> and I, I think you might remember it because it was a couple of years ago when um, – uh, we had just finished lecturing at Harvard, and I was coming down to New York City to participate in a country ham tasting mm-hmm. where the whole point is to taste and notice qualities. And uh, uh, like a week or 10 days before I came out to Harvard, uh, I just woke up one morning, made a cup of coffee, and realized I couldn't taste my coffee or I couldn't smell it. Um, and uh, that was scary because I'm in the middle of writing a book about smell. <laughs> and uh, uh, so I have a friend who uh, was at the time the director of the Monell Chemical Senses Center in Philadelphia, you know, center that specializes in taste and smell. And I wrote him immediately and said, uh, yeah, what do I do about this? And he he basically said, uh, it's a very common problem that lots and lots of people over the course of their lifetime do lose their sense of smell for a period of time, that it's happened to him, and that uh, there's really nothing that specialists in the field can uh, do to help or to uh uh, comfort you. You know, it, it, there's just no predicting when it's going to come back and how. So he said, just relax and uh, uh, try to enjoy the other qualities of foods. And um, so I, I did that. And uh, what I found, I did find that my um, my interest in eating really declined. You know, it's uh, smell is such a big part of it that I would just uh, not see the point of working really hard to make something nice for dinner <laughs> anymore. Um, so what I did end up doing, though, is uh, just noticing that uh, if the, when, when you can't smell food, then the other qualities become that much more important. So I found that um, if a food was uh, undersalted or if the meat was kind of, you know, tough and dry and not very interesting, that I just, uh, it made that particular dish really unappealing and I just didn't want to eat any more of it. Uh, so uh, my my feeling is that, uh, 
you know, investing in the idea that it's going to come back at some point, and you have to keep yourself healthy in the meantime and eat reasonably, uh, then what you do, uh, if you're cooking for yourself or if you're cooking for someone else who has this uh, problem, is just to make the food as appealing in all its other aspects as possible. And so that means uh, the seasoning. It means uh, I found myself using lemon juice and lime juice a lot more than I would have in the past. Uh, I liked crunchy things and really smooth, silky things, uh, but stuff that kind of dried out my mouth, you know, just uh, the, that didn't do it for me anymore. So tannins, you like laid off tannins and a lot of tannic stuff? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, one thing I remember doing that sounds a little, uh, well, it is kind of peculiar, but, uh, you know, I, uh, I live in California. There's a lot of citrus around all the time. And so I was trying to, you know, eat uh, my oranges, uh, get my vitamins. Um, and I noticed one day when I peeled my orange and then it took me a few hours to get around to eating it, I got distracted by something else. You know how the, um, the skin around each segment dries out? Uh, and it turns out if it dries out enough, instead of being chewy, which was not something that I was interested in without any sense of smell, it, it becomes really crisp. And then you get this kind of burst of flavor when you bite into it that made eating oranges, something as simple as eating oranges, uh, much more interesting to me. And this was on like a navel or like a setsuma, like a more of a clementine kind of a situation? Uh, actually, it was to, to begin, I first found it in, um, uh, in the smaller ones, in tangerines, uh, clementines, things like that. But it also works for navels. And then I discovered that uh, MFK Fisher actually wrote about this, you know, decades and decades ago. She was living in France. She she wasn't getting, uh, she didn't have the money to uh, eat uh, spectacularly well. But she found that if she left uh, a man peeled a mandarin orange, left it on her radiator until it dried out, uh, she got that wonderful release of flavor. Huh. Anyway, so little things like that I found could could make a really big difference. And then I also uh, am a believer in the idea that, you know, the, the more effort you make, the more you kind of uh, uh, make your olfactory system think that it's uh, – expectations are high for it, <laughs> that it'll come back faster. So I would just really concentrate on trying to smell things, even when I wasn't really getting anything. And uh, I don't know if that makes a difference or not, but at least you you have the feeling that you're, uh, again, ma making an effort, exercising the system, even if it's not responding the way you want it to yet. Now, uh, to be so people know, at the beginning, this wasn't like, oh, I have a stuffy nose. This is like nose clear, knocked out, though, right? Like knockout. Yeah, yeah. No, I that that was the scary thing is that I had no other symptoms. If I'd had a head cold, then sure, it kind of makes sense that my sense of smell is a little impaired. But I, I had had no other issues whatsoever. Just just realized one day I was drinking my coffee and I wasn't tasting coffee. Was there any moment during this? Time when you uh, found anything delicious? Uh, well, yeah, in a, in a kind of um, you know partial way. I mean, potato chips because they're they're salt uh, and actually potato chips, uh, sea salt and vinegar potato chips. Mm. 
because that, that was really hammering my taste buds, and the, the crispy, crunchy piece of it uh, was really wonderful, too. That was sort of my, my go-to, uh, you know, just to, to get calories, because I really wasn't interested in, uh, in eating. Did you, uh, did you do any of the texture-only uh, kind of famous dishes, like uh, Bird's Nest or any of that stuff? No, no. Um, that I should have done that. Yeah, yeah. I should have done. Hopefully, that. you will not have the chance to do it again. And it, <laughs> now, the other thing is, did did, uh, did it come back uh, slowly or or uh, my memory serves it came back somewhat gradually over the course of like a week or something, right? Uh, or even longer than that. I mean, it was several months before it came back. Uh, and then one day, uh, as I say, you know, I would try to make an effort to smell things. I would just kind of snort. Uh, trying to get the air rushing through my nasal passages harder. And uh, one day I just noticed that there seemed to be a little bit of a hint of um, uh, flavor. I think it was, again, in my in my morning cup of coffee. And it would then just go away, and I wouldn't get anything at all. And I was thinking, well, maybe I hallucinated it. Uh, and uh, over the course of several weeks, it slowly came back to the point where I didn't have to snort. I, I would actually get it just by uh, normal breathing. Huh. Mm, scary. So uh, do you want to – I actually have a question that you probably have some uh, answers to. you want to stay on with me or do you have to scoot off? It's up to, up to you. I could stay on for another 10, 15 minutes or so. All righty. Here we go. I got a question in on uh, Nastasia's uh, favorite. And she didn't actually punk you with this, Peter, but Peter also likes this. I'm going to jump in. We actually got a caller for uh, you and Harold. All right. So. We'll, we'll do that. We'll, we'll take the caller first. Cool. All right. Caller, you are you are on the air. Uh, how's it going? How's it going, Dan? Good. Well, I was wondering if there's any way to make cream unchurnable. Unchurnable? Or unturnable. Yeah, it not turn into butter at all. Oh. Uh, Harold, do you know of anything? Uh, unturnable. Well, uh, no, I, I mean, uh, starting with homogenized cream helps. That makes it a lot harder, but I think it, it would still, you know, if you, if you went at it hard enough, it would still, it would still churn. I mean, could, like, you could probably stabilize the ever-loving crap out of it, right? I mean... If you were to dope it with, uh, I mean, it's got what? It's uh, 70, roughly 70% water, 66, 60, 65, somewhere between 60 and 70% water in the cream that you have. So you could probably boil that a little bit to extract out some of the water, take pure water, hydrate some sort of... uh, like uh, some sort of thickener, and maybe that would help protect it in the way that uh, in the way that starch prevents um, yolk from um, uh, from curdling when you when you cook it. I don't know, Harold. Do you think anything like that could help, like st- sterically hinder the uh, the um, fat uh, agglomerating, or no? Yeah, no. I think I mean the the fat globules themselves are pretty stable to heat, so. Uh yeah, just uh, putting enough interfering material in there to get in the way of the, the globules touching each other, that's, that, w- that would probably be it. Right. I mean, you could probably turn the entire thing into a fluid gel, right, if you wanted to. And then if you did that, I wonder whether or not um, 
I wonder whether or not you could prevent it from, uh, I mean, the texture would be weird. It wouldn't be cream, but you might be able to stop it from having the ability because the individual, I think that the particles that you would have, you know how big the uh, fat globules are, like, uh, Harold, like, like, like roughly in micrometers, I have no, uh, in micrometer, I have no idea. I think it's on the order of 10, uh, un- unhomogenized. Right. So if you homogenize it smaller? Yeah. Okay, so the limits of your tongue are roughly 20, right? Which means that uh, if your fluid gel particles are somewhere between the order of 10 and 20, right, you should be able to lock a number of um, fat globules inside of the particles in the fluid gel and maybe prevent them from agglomerating because they, they'll they just be kind of trapped up in something that stays as a coherent unit. That's just a, This is a complete guess right out, of my, right out of my behind. I have no idea, but it's something to try. Uh, you know, what do you think, Harold? Is this any of this reasonable or no? Yeah, yeah. No, that, that, that sounds reasonable. Sounds like a good experiment. Yeah. All right. Um, yeah, appreciate it. Um, but going into Frosty Factory, so I don't know if the temperature or the constant movement is going to affect those... Uh, the like fluidity of the fat in it at all, and that was my only concern. Oh, if it's in a fat, if it's in a fat, I'm sure you could just use uh, some sort of steric inhibition or something uh, stabilizer. But you'd have to worry about uh, you'd have to worry about whether it's still going to flow fluidly or not. Fluid gel will flow fluidly if it's a low enough fluid gel. But I think the 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 lower the concentration on the fluid gel, the more it's a regular liquid with some particles in it that are stabilizing it versus particles with some liquid around them. You know. But again, this is you're, you're stretching way back on my memory banks for how to dork with things. Yeah, um, well, I appreciate the help, guys. All right, let us know. Uh, tweet on in. Let us know uh, what happens. Ooh, look, and we're joined. We have this is like a full house here. We got Daniel Gritzer in because I had a question later. Uh, so Harold, so uh, Daniel, ha- howdy, Daniel, have a seat. Uh, this is a question. Congratulations, Daniel. Thank you. Oh, what, what happened? What happened? We got married. Oh, we got married. Oh, yeah. How's that? How, how do you like being married? I like it. It's good. Yeah, it's all it's good. All good. All right. Uh, you know what else, Dave? What? It's episode two hundred and fifty today. Yeah. Nice. 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 Even number. Serendipity yeah. here. Yeah. Nice. It's a good way I to like celebrate two fifty. It Chris is. Chris McGreat, man, McGee. That's good. Yeah. Peter Kim. All right. And Peter Kim. Yeah. Okay. This guy over here. <laughs> so, uh, speaking of the curious cook and the fact that you should republish it, Harold, uh, we have a question on, uh, and it's written this way: Jerusalem fartichokes. <laughs> <laughs> Jerusalem fartichokes. I will read the question. Uh, this is from David in Ottawa. Uh, we've been making uh, confit J-chokes at the rest. I like J-chokes. Yeah, it's a good name. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, good rapper name. It, it's a great rap name or song. Yeah, uh, yeah J-chokes. Uh, Nastasia, of course, it, listeners will remember that Nastasia once uh, gastrointestinally poisoned her friends by feeding them quarts of... Uh, <laughs> Mildly cooked Jerusalem artichokes in like a salad format at a picnic thing. <laughs> literally, she knew With no bathroom around anywhere. Literally, she knew that this was like you know uh, fer- fermentation, like uh, you know extravaganza going to happen in their guts in the, you know within the next couple of hours. The reason she knew is because she had done it to herself. Uh, She's anyway, smiling right now. Yeah, she just so you know what I deal with people. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> 
Basically, we just uh, poached the J-Chokes and clarified butter. When we cook them, a sticky white scum floats to the surface. That's my next band, Sticky White Scum. Mm. Uh, as the line cooks are wont to do, we ate some. It's uh, sticky, sweet, sticky, and uh, delicious. Here's the question. Do you think this scum could just be purified... Uh, uh, these are in quotes, Harold. Small chain uh, fructosans and starch-like inulin uh, that McGee uh, descri- uh, describes politely as causing abdominal discomfort, uh, discomfort. When we ate it, there was no noticeable effect. But also, we're the kinds of people who eat the scum raft from the top of a pot of poaching J-chokes. So perhaps we don't make the best control group. Uh, any thoughts? I guess I could munch down on a full glob of this stuff and see what happens, but I'd rather have an educated guest before risking uh, dinner service ruinations. Regards, David in um, Ottawa. Okay. Well, it's interesting that they're poaching it in butter. I know, you know, inulin is really soluble in uh, water, and that's why, you know, you say boil them in a big pot of water after you let them age uh, for a while. But you guys got any uh, thought? You got any thoughts on this, Harold, Mister Inulin Man? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, the uh, scum rising to the top—that sounds to me like it's uh, it's going to be probably as rich in stuff other than inulin. I mean, proteins and, uh, you know, surface active materials. Uh, uh, so, you know, my, my sense is it's not going to be especially uh, enriched in stuff that's going to cause trouble. I mean, well, yeah, except for Jerusalem artichokes themselves. I looked it up because I had the benefit of knowing that I was going to be asked this question like, you know, an hour or two ago. But it, uh, they're like 20% inulin or something crazy like that, right? They're like, yeah. they're, they're high in inulin. And inulin itself forms, uh, or can in certain circumstances, form a gel. I didn't read it carefully. I didn't realize it was in butter. Um, so that's a different, that they're doing it in butter. So that the, I mean, obviously the scum floating to the top is probably water-soluble stuff expelled from the chokes, right? The other thing is, is like, you, like everyone can tolerate a certain amount of this garbage. Not garbage, you know what I'm saying, in their system, right? It's a, yeah. it's a soluble fiber. That's the, that's the dealy deal. It's soluble fiber. So you can't digest it. The definition of fiber, I think, basically is that you can't digest it, right? That's really – it doesn't have to be fibrous. It doesn't have to be a fiber as long as it's – oh, my God. I just uh, – in my mind, now I'm thinking of the sandlot because whenever I – fiber, fiber. You know, for those of you know that – you know the sandlot, Dan? No, no. I'm missing the reference. Forever. you never seen this movie, no. Jack? Anyone yes, seen this of movie? of course, forever. Right, yes. Forever. Anyway, so the um, – Point being that it goes into your gut, and then uh, the microbes in your gut, uh, they can digest this stuff just fine. They produce a whole boatload of gas, and there you have it, right? But the more you eat of it, probably the more accustomed you get to it, the less of a big dose that your gut microflora get, and the more you can handle it. Wouldn't you say that's true, Harold? Uh, yes, that's that's certainly the, the fact when it comes to uh, beans. That's been studied in uh, bean flatulence, <laughs> not not to my knowledge, with uh, inulin flatulence. The other thing to to know about the the particular bugs that you're feeding is that uh, it's the bifidobacteria that are especially fond of inulin and fructosans and things like that. And they're, uh, of, of all the bugs in our gut, apparently the ones that are uh, doing us the most good most of the time. So I actually think that, you know, throwing a few slices of Jerusalem artichoke into your daily, uh, your daily diet is probably a really good idea. Yeah, that's the. Those are the uh, bacteria that they dope into Jamie Lee Curtis's uh, Jamie Lee Curtis's feminine poop yogurt, right? <laughs> I uh, don't know about that. Acti- maybe acti- it's Activia, right? Is am I wrong uh, about yeah. this? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 
I think that's what they do. I think that's what they put in. The uh, I don't know why all, it's only for women. Like, why can't can't men also benefit from this? Is is there the some sort of a gender? No, from the the the, the bacteria right. doped yogurt to make you poo. Right. Is there is, is there an actual difference between the genders in the what the yogurt does to your body? We, clearly, we've not studied I, this. Yeah, this needs to be looked clearly at more nobody closely. knows. Stasi, do you know anything about this? No. Nope. Have you seen the Kirsten Wig imitation of Jamie Lee Curtis yeah. pooping herself on Saturday Night Live? Yeah. <laughs> worth, worth worth a watch. Um, okay, so uh, uh, the other thing is is that um, a lot of this is in small amounts. Obviously, this isn't going to do much. It's if you gorge on this stuff and you're not used to it is when you're really going to have the uh, the hammer come down on you, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And the the rawer the the more likely that is. Yeah. So Peter Kim uh, is using was using chicory root, which also is extremely high in inulin, uh, for making uh, tablets for the Museum of Food and Drink. And originally, we were worried about the dose level of um, uh, soluble fiber that these uh, inulin these folks would be getting. So Peter graciously uh, ate about 15 times as many pills as the average guest could uh, hope to consume. And what happened to you? Well, I got myself a stack of magazines, <laughs> and lit some candles, <laughs> and had myself a nice little inulin feast. No, it was fine, man. It yeah. was fine. Yeah. And I, basically, we we uh, did some calculations on what typical tolerance levels are for inulin and figured that even if a small child ate 100 of these, they'd probably still be okay. So, um, And I, indeed, was all right. So Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, nice. Oh, here's a question I have for anyone that's ever thought about this. So uh, where, where else do we uh, deal with inulin a lot? Anyone, anyone? Any, first of all, inulin, oh. inulin, basically long-chain fructose, okay? Yeah. Long-chain fructose. Let's just get that out of the way. So agave. Yeah. Inulin, agave. And artichokes, right? Uh, regular artichokes? I don't know. I don't know. Chicory root, Jerusalem artichokes. Uh, agave. But my point is, has anyone made a a distilled spirit with Jerusalem artichokes? Like a super long bake, like you do for agave, for agave piñas, and then uh, make them into a, a, a liquor. You ever heard of anything like that, Harold? Anyone? No, that sounds like a great idea. Right? I think I know who's <laughs> yeah. going to do it, too. Well, I don't know. Do you have a, like, they grow in rather northern climes, right? It's not a southern vegetable, isn't it? Like... Isn't it, can I grow it here? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Sure can. So, uh, you know, like, uh, I don't have a ready access to it. Maybe I'll try it this year. I'll try to mash some out and do some uh, distillation. But anyone out there, I'm sure someone in the cooking issues uh, world is it's just a kind of lunatic who has tried it. And so, like, you know, let me know. But I think uh, we could have a new distilled spirit on our hands. What would you what would you call that? Jay J choke Jay fartka Jay oh well you remember you got to defart it because you're gonna you're gonna be cooking the you're gonna be cooking the ever loving snot out of it. Um, anyways, I don't know sun sun liquor or sun, sun sun booze. Why do they call them sunflower? Sun oh they're related to sunflowers. Yeah yeah. Wow. It's it's uh, and it's a native. If I'm remembering correctly, it's a native of one of the few food uh, items that come from North America. Well, there you go. It's our you know it's the north. It's the north part of North America because remember Mexico is North America people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, but it's yeah. the north part of Northern America's native. Uh, it's like our agave. Only you know you don't have to wait so long to harvest it and. 
I wonder whether I wonder whether there'll be a lot of big flavor differences between different. T- I don't know. Someone, someone's, someone's done it, and they're going to be like Dave. The reason no one makes is it tastes like garbage. It tastes like garbage. <laughs> that's why. You know what I mean? But we should probably have like a, a someone who's done a lot of distilling of raw materials do it first, so that we we you know get rid of the control of this person just doesn't know what the hell they're doing with distillation. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Anyway, uh, but I think it'd be much more interesting to do it the old school way. Actually, cook it until it until you get sugar, and then ferment it rather than because you can just hit it with enzymes, and then that's yep. it. You know what I mean? Also, yep. uh, like uh, inulin breakdown, I was looking up today. Really, really rapid at low pH, right? But the fact of the matter is, uh, you have to get below about pH four before the hydrolysis uh, of inulin to fructose is very rapid um, at normal uh, cooking temperatures. And who wants their Jerusalem artichokes to be, you know, more tart than a tomato? Yeah. You know, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Doesn't sound right to me. Would you, would you want that, <laughs> nope. Harold? I mean, like, hey, you could speed it up by adding acid, but uh, on the other hand, now all your juice and artichokes taste like uh, acid. You know what I mean? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I usually fry mine in Alestra myself. Dude, so. don't be going off against Alestra. Have we had this conversation on the air already? Are you making me redo a conversation we've already had on the air? <laughs> yeah. Seriously? Have we t- Jack, do you remember me ever talking about Alestra? I do. You uh, do because you've heard, you live, you work with me in the real life. Have we talked about it on air? Uh, Jack stepped away, but I don't remember. Yeah, well, we probably have. There's nothing wrong, but there are many things wrong with Olestra. Like, they bind fat-soluble vitamins, so you have to dope yourself with them, because otherwise you poop out all the fat-soluble vitamins. But as long as you're using a solid Olestra, it's not going to run out of your behind without your knowing. (laughs) Elliot in the chat room remembers. That's a relief. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I tell you, like again, like briefly, that the reason people didn't like the Olestra potato chips was because they were made with hydrogenated fat, and they tasted greasy. In fact, they and I've said this before on air, they had to develop a hot air curtain to blow the outside layer of fat off of the potato chips to reduce the greasiness because you're not supposed to fry potato chips in a hydrogenated fat. Not for health reasons, for taste reasons. It just doesn't taste right. Mm -hmm. For the same reason that you're not supposed to fry a donut in a liquid fat because it just doesn't taste right. It tastes greasy. Do you like a greasy donut, Daniel? Well, no, I don't. I don't love greasy donuts. Harold, greasy? You like a greasy donut? Nope. No, didn't think so. Um... Hey, actually, I don't know, Harold, whether you've done it, if you have time. We, uh, we have uh, another uh, question that you might have uh, done some work on. Um, okay. Uh, this is from – well, I don't, I don't have who it's from. Um, I got a bread baking question. In particular, it's about the tangzong roux that is used to uh, mix into a bread recipe to make fluffy bread. Now, what we're talking about here is like the water roux where you pre-make a roux. And then uh, you mix it into the bread. You know about this, Daniel? I don't. I don't. I don't bake much, so yeah. this is new to me. It's been getting a lot of. It's it's started out in the in the I guess the early two thousands, but it's been getting more and more play. You know the Asian style bread that is really fluffy mm-hmm. and lasts a long time. Harold, you you you've been following this or no? No, I have not. Yeah. All right. Well, so then we'll just, I'll just go on. Okay. So just so you know, what the the basic premise here is. Well, I'll read the question first. Um. 
let me see. Uh, while I understand that it produces a fluffier and softer final bread product, could you explain the science of why the roux would have this effect on the bread? In the past, uh, I've played with adding some milk into the bread to make it softer as well. How does this roux affect the bread versus just using milk in a recipe? Uh, and preliminary research on the webs uh, shows stuff about super hydration. Uh, thanks for uh, such a good podcast. Nice. Uh, and by the way, uh, oh, this is from Don, uh, Don Vo in Berkeley, California. He actually calls you out, Peter. He says, hello to Dave Nastasia, not Stas, Nastasia, Lopez, Jackie Molecules, and Peter's sandwich aficionado, Kim. So, Peter, you get the <laughs> shout out on this as well. So, basically, um, what the, the uh, uh, oh, and also uh, says, uh, got the BDX cube, and he thinks it's fantastic and has made a, an improved Clover Club for him. Okay. So, here's the, here's the deal. You take, and before you, you take a portion of water, typically it's about five to one, so about five parts water, one part flour, and uh, it's usually a real, you know, not that large amount of the water, but the water, and you uh, cook it like you're making a roux. However, the traditional, uh, traditional, the way that it's written in recipes, originally, everyone's like, oh, keep it to exactly 65 degrees uh, Celsius, right? And um, so I made, I haven't made, didn't have a chance to make bread, but I made one that I took to 65 on the dot and one that I boiled just to see the, the difference. Um, so what happens is, is you're partially, when you take it to 65, you're partially pasting, uh, partially swelling the starch, but you haven't completely uh, gotten all the starch, uh, you know, fully, you know, um, swell with water and paste it out yet, right? And so what you're really doing is just adding a boat ton more water to the bread than you could do any other way. The same, because if you had added that much uh, water to it without pre-cooking it, you'd lack structure. The water, by pre-swelling the starch, gives you enough structure to form the bread and allow it to cook properly uh, without it... Um, that's it. That's basically what it's doing. Wouldn't you guys agree, just from the description I've given, that that's what's happening? Undoubtedly. Yeah. So it's like a yeah. super hydrated... Yeah. So you so you know you could take something and have the workability of like a seventy or eighty percent hydration uh, dough, uh, but you could be hydrating it kind of much higher. Um, now I don't know what the difference is. I'm passing this, Harold. You can't do it. This is boiled after it's cooled, and this is basically. Uh, so this is bo boiled, and um, this is the same ratio. It's pretty much turned to a gel after it's uh, gone back. So that might be a hindrance to the dough. Mm. And then this here is the 65 degree, and that's still more like oh, a pudding yeah. or, or runny. They are different. They're very different. And so uh, my feeling is, folks, is that um, don't bother. What you're doing here is you're just allowing yourself to add more water to the dough. I mean, that's basically what you're doing and maintaining the same workability. That's, that's what's happening here. There might be some other, like, fancy Dan stuff that's happening when it's uh, – not fancy Dan, but, you know, fancy Dan uh, <laughs> the, um, as, it's, as it's coming up. But that's basically what's happening. As for the temperature, I don't think you have to be too anal because it, the, the wheat starch is just going to start – um, swelling and pasting at, when it hits about 60, 65 C. So if you just take it off as soon as it goes super like uh, thick, but like as soon as it starts to thicken up on you, you're going to be good because uh, you you know I, I really wouldn't worry that much uh, about you know. And also, if you're going to cool it for a long time, I don't know whether or not you're working on the fact that it's retrograding to get the extra structure, or you're getting what's called starch setback to add extra structure, in which case maybe it would make a difference uh, if you heated it longer or not. These are all interesting subjects, but I'd have to actually bake some bread to figure that out, and I didn't have time to do that uh, this morning. I'm just as curious about the use of the word rue here. 
I think of a roux as you cooking flour in a fat, but are, yeah, this is essentially is is any roux like a a, a slur a flour slurry that is then cooked, whether it's in a water or a fat. Mm, not that I know of, Harold. Do you know of uh, the, the, why they use this kind? Of, can you any guesses on this terminology? Or oh, I think Daniel is right that a roux is flour cooked in fat. Yeah, not not in water, and then yeah. added to, and then liquid added to it to, to and then presumably yeah. the cooking in fat, right, is to prevent clumping when you add the liquid. I mean, the only purpose of the fat, right, is to prevent clumping. That's all it's doing, right? Is there any other reason for it other than it allows you to evenly heat the flour up to a higher stage of cooking? Oh, I I bet it makes a difference for the flavor. You know, uh, even a neutral oil, you're you're going to get. Uh, reactions to take place that wouldn't happen if it was just dry heat. In, uh, yeah. Eh, okay. Fair. Yeah. So different flavor from adding the oil afterwards. Yeah. 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 All right. Yeah, fair enough. Um, all right. Anyway, uh, and this also obviously you could do this with non-wheat starches and all sorts of other things <laughs> as other people have done. It's an interesting uh, thing. So it's worth uh, it's worth some um, experimentation. Uh, now. Yeah. Uh, I don't know, uh, Harold, if you have to if you have to go or if you can stay. Uh, but uh, we got a question. Daniel wrote a uh, article on uh, nixtamalization for the serious seeds. Correct. What's your current title there, anyway? Oh, culinary director. Culinary director. Okay. And you wrote an article on nixtamalization. Very kindly, actually gave a shout out to an article I had written. Well, uh, yeah, because I, I I used I used it heavily for <laughs> for, <laughs> for information. So, um, f- for those of you that don't know, nixtamalization is the process uh, by which you um, cook. You can do it with other grains, actually, but you par you par cook corn in uh, in an alkaline environment. Um, Par cook in an alkaline environment, it dissolves the uh, the coat on the outside of the corn, partially dissolves it. You partially then rub that off. It changes the taste. It changes the, reolo- the rheology of it. Uh, originally, it was designed to allow you to be able to grind corn uh, easily by hand on a stone thing called a matate. But it is the reason that cornmeal doesn't taste like a tortilla and that a tortilla tastes like a tortilla is the process of nixtamalization. It is also the, uh, the changes that the corn goes through in terms of partial cooking of the starches, going back to what we were talking about with this with this roux, whatever you want to call it, bread technique, mm-hmm. and uh, the change of the outside of the seed coat into uh, some form of weird hydrocolloid, plus the addition of the fat from the germ, because it's a whole corn kind of a situation. All of that together makes masa, which is what makes an awesome tortilla. Uh, normally, it is a, uh, a pain in the butt to make. Daniel, you posted a recipe where you used a food processor, and what was your secret? I know what it is. I'm so asking you to ask because it's your right. So I mean, the big challenge for people at home is is grinding the corn properly, um, and uh, lot uh, you know you can try a food processor, but that comes with its own challenges. Mainly that in order to get everything in the food processor to to spin sufficiently enough to grind it to a point where you can form tortillas, you have to add too much water to the mix, and then you have a then you have a masa that's that's far too wet uh, and almost bordering on a batter type consistency actually more like a hummus think of like a like hummus uh, you can't really make tortillas from that so then basically adding uh adding some masa harina masa harina uh, uh back in which is which is the store-bought convenience product of of uh of of masa that what do they do? Do they, they they dry it somehow and turn it into a flour? They, they yeah they have a large production line where they have like continuous basically nixtamalization it goes through a soak tank then they uh, then they I think 
I don't know. I think they dry it and grind it. I don't think that they. Harold, do you know? I don't think that they wet. I don't think they wet grind it and then and then dry it. I think they dry it and then grind it. Hmm. Yeah, I'm not sure. So not maybe sure. like ground pozole or something like that. Yeah. Sort of like dried. Yeah. Uh, but not right. hasn't been already been re, it hasn't been reboiled up to the yes, but yes yeah. the. Um, I think that's how they do it. I don't know. I used to know, but uh, you know, it's been a, a long time. I mean, the, the, look, look, as you point out in your article, like just buying maseca. You, look, it's Maserina Maseca is like the brand name yeah, it, right. that you know that that everyone gets. Quaker also makes one. Uh, there's a there's a bunch of people that make them, and it is a large step above. Um, a large step above um, buying uh, pre-made tortillas. Yeah. Like once you heat a tortilla and let it cool down again and then put it in your fridge, you have lost. You've lost. Yeah, they're horrible. They're good for frying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can fry them up. Yeah, That's right. they're good for frying. They're good, yeah, you know, fry them, make chilaquiles, do something like this. But like for like actually eating, no freaking bueno, right? Uh, now they... Masa harina is, you know, or maseca is a very is good. It's much better than a pre-made tortilla, which most of the pre-made tortillas that you are getting are first first insult is they are made with maseca, and the second one is that they have cooked them like a week ago and added a bunch of stuff so that it can sit basically at room temperature, fundamentally molding in its own like plastic container. You yeah, know, you ever that, notice that sometimes they smell like ammonia? Yeah, because they're all doped oh, up with stuff to stop them from going off on you. But that's, you know, all of those smells go away when you fry them. That's why that, those are the only <laughs> chips I use for frying. There's no excuse to buy tortilla chips, pre-fried tortilla chips. They're not as good. And they're really freaking expensive. Right. Unless you need a, a lot. I, mean, I could see an argument if you were doing a party and you need to fill a huge chip bowl for your guac with, you know. But that's when I start frying is when I do that. <laughs> because, like, think about it this way. You're buying uh, a 20-ounce bag of, like, medium-quality tortilla chips is going to run you, like, four-something dollars, I think, at a store, mm-hmm. right? And you could buy one of those like well over like i forget how much the stacks of tortillas are but they're over 20 way over 20 ounces right mm-hmm. and they're thicker better and uh they're like a dollar and it's so fast to fry them i most of my home frying now in connecticut i have my deep fryer but you know at home home i do most of my frying in a wok mm-hmm. the reason is is um Oil expansion is a lot less dangerous in a wok because it's constantly increasing its diameter as it goes up. So people, as long as you don't overfill your wok, you have a lot of safety room on oil expansion when you're working. And tortillas are the most forgiving thing on earth to fry because all you're trying to do is expel the water and get them crunchy. So you oil oil and wok. I think I've said this before, too. Take the tortillas out, do the back break, snack, snacks, break them, individually separate them, cut them in six, fry them, done. Like... I could crank out in under 20 minutes. I could have, you know, big shopping bag, eh, 30, you know, but like shopping bags full of tortilla chips. It's really like it's one of the few things at home that I would recommend frying at home is much easier than doing uh, any other way. Um, but anyway, the point is, is that if someone asked me, should I try this recipe that you wrote? And my answer is yes. It's like, is it worth making, like making your own nixtamal? The nixtamal part's not hard. It's the grinding that's a pain in the butt. Definitely. Uh, I mean, maybe the hardest part, aside from the grinding, 
uh, issue is is just getting the the corn. Oh yeah, buying the corn. You look. You can't. It's not easy. It's harder even to grind. You can literally try it at home with popcorn. It's not as good, but it is doable. It's doable. Yeah. Oh wow. Uh, it's harder even to grind, and they and the endosperm to to skin ratio Ratios, is not yeah. is not ideal. But to just to try it once, you can. I've done it. Um, the, the so yeah. Get, but you, you said you can get the corn now on Amazon, no? Yeah. Oh, yeah. You totally can. It's just like a twenty-five pound bag. It's a lot of corn. But uh, you know, I I think if you look around there, there are there are sources, especially I think even at farmers markets now, where you have these people selling you know their 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 fancy little bags of of grain. You might be able to find it or. Yeah, online sources, or I don't know, get go in, go in on it with a friend and divvy up a large bag. I mean, the other thing is it keeps forever as yeah. long as you keep it in good condition. You, so it, now it, you're gonna make me say it forever. For, <laughs> I gotta go. I have to see this. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, the hard part is really grinding. If you try to grind, it, you just can't grind at the right texture in a food processor. Even like you know, as the m- motor's about to burn out, you can't do it. It's just like a nightmare. So I think it's entirely legitimate. Uh, to do your nixtamalization and then uh, over wet grind it and dope it back with like masa. So like for a, like how much masa are you adding back typically? It depends. It really depends how much water you add to the food processor. And I was eyeballing it every time because it just I don't know didn't seem like it needed to be so precise. And different. Even if I got that precise, someone else has different corn. It's going to have different requirements. Yeah. Um, so it depends. But I would say I'm guessing maybe you end up it's. Ballpark a quarter to a third, uh, maseka masaharina, yeah. and the rest is your freshly nixtamalized uh, masa. And I and you get you really do get that fresh nixtamal flavor, even with the addition of the masaharina to to soak up that excess moisture. All right, so we're about to get kicked off here, but let me just I'll say a couple things on the way out. Thank you, uh, Harold, for uh, coming uh, on the. Uh, the show. Thank you, uh, Daniel and Peter. I didn't know Peter was going to be on. You get uh, uh, a limited edition Cooking Issues uh, blue tape key ring there, Daniel. And, oh, this uh, is awesome. Hashtag always label. You can fill that up. That's many. That's feet of blue tape. <laughs> and then when you're when you're done with it, you pull this uh, quick pin out, and this fits. And it blows up. The, yeah, this this fits on the on the hex drive of like a, a, a you know a, a drill bit like a like a Phillips head thing, and then you can refill it with tape. And you're good to go again. Uh, so thanks for coming on and talking about Nixtamal and many things. Thanks, thanks Harold. For having me. Thanks, uh, thanks, Peter. A couple tips on the masa. Masa is a, a whole grain, so there is fat in it. So store it like it might go rancid. In mm. other words, don't keep it forever after you've opened it. Have you ever had that problem, uh, anyone? Anyone like like if you had it for years open, it's gonna take a musty kind of rancid note to it. You mean the flour? The, yeah, the the maseka, the the masa harina. Like I wouldn't I wouldn't open it and then leave it on your shelf for the rest of time. That's a good tip. I, I don't I don't know that I've ever. Just, this is the guess. I've it. I've smelled some old stuff and it started smelling cardboardy to me, and then I pitched it and got and got new. Uh, also, don't. Be too quick to add the water in the food processor. Let it grind and add in small increments because a little bit of water goes a long mm-hmm. way. You mm-hmm. agree with me on that? Yeah, sure, for sure. All right, thanks everyone. Coming back next week with Cooking Issues. listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. 
You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.